and welcome to this week's episode of Is This Normal? Today we're talking to Vicky Campbell from Keep It Be DNI about all things first aid. Now, Sheena, how are you when it comes to an emergency with Dara? I am probably not great, but I'm not the worst. I don't, I'm not one of these people who is afraid of blood, obviously. It, it, I think, do you know what? I think when it's your child, there is an automatic kind of panic that goes off, but um. I do try my best to remain like a, a cool a cool facade anyway as if I'm I'm I kinda have things under control. But I know when at first like when the first wee things started to come, even around like weaning and Dara was quite like a choky baby with his reflux and that terrified me. Even I'll never forget him getting hiccups, I think, at a couple of days old. And they looked so violent and I thought they were, you know, he was clearly in distress, which obviously he wasn't and they're fine, but I think I could be doing with some reassurance and some tips from Vicky. So I'm delighted to have her on today. I know. I think I'm definitely a worrier. Like I just, I think I'm, I'm terrible. I go to the worst case scenario. Yeah. Um. So I, I definitely maybe a little bit of reassurance and talking through some of those things because, you know, you were talking about choking there and that I think is, it's every parent's nightmare. But yeah, for me, it's just, it's just always there, you know, <laughs> what could happen. <laughs> um, but yeah, it'll be really interesting to, to chat to Becky and see what she's got to say. We are joined by Vicky Campbell, who is from Keep A Beat NI, um, a dedicated service here in Northern Ireland offering first aid trained courses. Vicky, thank you for joining us. We are just kind of keen to know how you got started in this line of work and kind of what led you to become um, obviously a dedicated first aid instructor and, and, and obviously open this business. Excellent. So thank you so much for having me along. First of all, ladies, I really do appreciate it. As you said, everybody knowing first aid should should be the case because whenever I think whenever we've been at home with our kids a lot more in the last year we've realized the the kind of things that they can get up to whenever they're left to their own devices so yes as you'd said I'm Vicky and I am one of two owners of Keep a Beat First Aid and I and everybody assumes that we have came from a, a medical background and no we are Definitely not from a medical background, but that does not take away from the fact that we do know what we're doing. I came from a teaching background. So I taught engineering, believe it or not, uh, for eight years. And uh, so I was one of the 9% of female engineers here in Northern Ireland. Proud to be part of that. And uh, absolutely. Yeah. And Denise and I found ourselves off on maternity leave at the same time. So I am a mummy of three. So my oldest is 10, my middle one is almost seven, and my baby uh, yeah, is three next week, which I can't believe either. So uh, yeah, we were both off maternity leave at the same time. And our circumstances were changing. I wanted to be at home a little bit more. Three kids running around the place. And the business, Keep a Beat, came up for sale. The previous owner, her circumstances had changed and she was moving back to England. So she put the business up for sale. Denise and I, we'd never run a business before. And we thought, well, sure, why not? Uh, Denise and I have been friends for nearly 19 years. And why not add an extra dimension to our already crazy friendship? And two and a half years in, we are running, still running Keep A Beat and we were absolutely flying pre-pandemic. We were cruising around the country delivering first aid courses to parents all over Northern Ireland. Pandemic hit, but we really do want to just literally pick up, we hope, where we left off and begin to teach parents face to face again. We've been doing it online during the pandemic, uh, but we really want to get back out face to face. So that's where we are right now. You know, a lot of people maybe think about doing a first day course before baby arrives, because from the minute you bring them home, you have concerns. You know, you just start worrying from the, the second they're born, probably before that, really. And um, so the first area we, I suppose, want to talk about is breathing for newborns. Uh, I know when I brought my wee boy Theo home, um, you just watch them. <laughs> you can't stop looking at them. And I know in the first couple of nights, my husband and I had this crazy idea where one of us would always be awake to watch him, you know, just to make sure he was still breathing. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's many other parents who uh, who maybe do things like that. They're a little bit, a little bit out there, but um, breathing, it's, you just have such a fear 
when they're so little and the noises sometimes that they make, you kind of think, are they normal? <laughs> um, so do you want to talk us through a little bit about newborn breathing? What is what is normal for a newborn infant? Yeah, what is normal? And yes, you see, whenever you bring your baby home for the first time, pre, you know, whenever you're you're pregnant, everybody's so focused on the pregnancy and the labour and then you don't realise that a day after you give birth that you're being sent home with this little human being that you are totally responsible for. Uh, nobody tells you about that after a bit. So, yeah, it's a very stark realisation. So we've all been there. We've all been watching our babies sleep, even though we know that we need to sleep. But, yeah, it is a very normal part of it. So normal breathing for babies. Our, bre- our babies breathe a lot faster than we do. We sort of uh, breathe anywhere between 13 to 20 breaths per minute, whereas our babies are actually double that. They're upwards between 35 to 40 breaths per minute. And it's simply down to the fact that their lung capacity is a lot smaller than ours is. So they need to breathe a lot more often to keep that oxygen supply up where it needs to be. And those little grunts and noises that they're making, again, all perfectly normal. But if they do become unconscious and it sounds like they're like gasping for breath that is not normal breathing so if it doesn't sound normal uh, then you're beginning you know beginning to think about your your resuscitation sequence then at that point I think I know it's that stage isn't it um, where you're you've landed home with them and and you are so you know you're, you're so nervous about everything and everything you do because it's this little tiny bundle like you said Vicky where you're totally responsible for and you've just you know this is you now at home um and I think for for new parents particularly first time parents obviously pre prior to the baby coming um you're you're maybe you know you're researching and you're 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 inundated as well with products on the market um you know these are the must-have baby items. These will, you know, these will do X, Y, and Z for your baby, and 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 all that. Um, and one of those things is obviously, you know, baby monitors, and the particular, in particular, the ones that obviously have, you know, the mats and the sensor, um, for like your baby's heartbeat and their breathing. So I mean, what what is your view on those? Vicky? are those are they are they a good investment if if you are a worried or anxious parent, or are they, you know, are they not worth their money? Yes, 100%. Those monitors will just give you that peace of mind that literally money cannot buy. And, you know, even though the advice is that we keep our baby in the room for as long as we possibly can in around that sort of six month mark, all of our sleep guidance with regards to safe sleep, etc. will come directly from the Lullaby Trust. So that is another excellent resource for new parents to go to. And it very much goes into temperature of the room, for example, sleep aids, and uh, you know what is safe when to use those etc etc but those uh, monitors so you've got loads of different ones you've got your video monitors great but the one that I constantly swear by is the set the sensor one that you had mentioned Sheena whereby it goes underneath the the mattress of the cot or the, the the crib or whatever they're sleeping in and it will monitor that breathing rate. And I think the normal limit or the time that they give for monitoring for breathing is 20 seconds. So if it doesn't pick up any form of emotion for 20 seconds, the alarm will raise. And that's even advised if the baby is still in the room with you, because if you're anything like myself, ladies, once I get the sleep, that is me. I am out. So I would never hear if my baby had stopped breathing even with them beside me. So those sensors, and as long as they are set up according to the manufacturing instructions with regards to the location of the lead, etc., then yes, 100% recommend them. And it just gives you that valuable, valuable peace of mind as a parent. That's interesting because actually I I didn't get one of those when I had my wee boy, but it is something I think I would consider if we had a second because the breathing was such a it made me so anxious and maybe having that other layer of reassurance knowing that there's something there um because I remember actually recording <laughs> in the middle of the night I should do recording him breathing to let my health visitor listen to it to say is this normal breathing um so maybe if if we did have another that's something I would definitely consider investing in just for that and of course coming to one of our first aid for parents sessions 
Of course, of course. I know I, I feel like you can never do that enough. Like we did do a course before Theo was born, but sometimes I worry that if a situation arose, I wouldn't be able to pluck that information and actually use it. It would surprise you genuinely. We, you know, we have unfortunately have had messages, phone calls from parents who have attended our courses, who have had to use the knowledge that they picked up during that course. And they had exactly the same concerns there where they think, oh, I'll never remember this whenever I need to. They did. They genuinely did. So no, have no doubt in your mind that whenever you need it, it magically appears at the forefront of your mind. So no, I'm so glad that you did do a course. That is brilliant. I think you're right with the with the the knowledge part of it as well. Like you 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 do spend so much time, I think, prior to a baby's arrival, preparing and nesting, and you can't be armed with too much knowledge in terms of you know safety and things like that. And we actually did. Um we did have the the monitor with the sensor pad. And I remember the um the first night we hadn't we hadn't set it up in the crib prior to bringing um Dara home from hospital, and I remember the the sheer panic that night before we would even you know go up the stairs. This monitor had to be in place, and we were in a we were in a funny situation where my brother and his wife had just had a baby a few months before us. It was their first. They had bought one of these as well and had been obviously using it for a few months and had had said obviously it was great and, and really reassuring. So it was it was a frantic phone call to him to be like, have we set this up right? Sending pictures on WhatsApp um and testing it out. But I have to say it even that even just having that there, yes, okay, I did. I, I was like you, sir. I, I sat awake in those early weeks watching him and watching his chest move and you know, even you know, reaching over into the into the crib to make sure he was still sleeping. Um safely beside me but they they definitely I would I would recommend the the sensor monitor as well for for just that extra reassurance um so as well as that then you you kind of get that newborn stage out of the way and, and things become slightly more normal you hope and then obviously there's there's always something where babies are concerned and you move into the the weaning stage um which is obviously a, a daunting stage in itself I know with my set my my own son I was terrified of the weaning stage um because he had silent reflux as a baby so I already had that to deal with and then the prospect of obviously giving him solid food that obviously could could aggravate that and, and again I was reassured by the medical professional so actually you know a silent reflux should settle you know when he's on solids and and it did it did at a stage but I do remember the stage where you know you're starting out and you've got this internal argument as well do you go down the spoon fed route or do you do the baby led route and I admit I was terrified of baby led waiting after an experience with a with a piece of toast with my own son just a very you know and it was all safely cut in, in the same way it should have been and um just the 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 choking and the gagging and, and and just not being obviously aware not really knowing what to do in that situation so again, we know that is something that parents do worry about, um, Vicky. But I mean, there is obviously a very, very stark difference between choking and and gagging in a child. Can you take us through that and just explain what we should be looking for? Yes, of course. Uh, listen, we could sell courses all day long. If we asked 100 customers what brought them to our course, 99 out of 100 of them will say choking. And the other one would be because of something that happened to them personally, you know, that would be different. Uh, so, yeah, choking and gagging, huge, huge fears that people have. And, you know, it takes away nearly from the the delight of being able to wean our babies because it should be an exciting, fun time. But what actually stressed me out more was the mess. And well, oh, that sounds terrible. But yeah, it was the mess that scared me more than the actual anything else. But yes, uh, whenever we in introduce foods to our babies for the first time and the closer we can get to six months, whenever we do that, it's so much better. And all of the health professionals, midwives, health visitors, again, would recommend that. But again, different circumstances affect different people and they may be advised slightly differently from the paediatrician, for example. And that's all OK. So whenever we introduce foods to our baby, we are introducing either it could be a solid piece of food in the form of baby led weaning or it could be pureed food uh, because I think solid food scares people because it looks like it's going to make them at a higher risk of choking. But actually, 
if the food that you know the finger food that you're giving your baby is prepared properly as in it squishes between the the fingers the risk of choking is no higher than pureed food so it's just down to the proper prep and if you're able to squish it it means that the babies are able to squish it between their gums very safely and break it down but those first taste babies gag reflex is much further forward in their mouths than what it is in us as adults and that is a safety mechanism for our babies to protect their airway so it will happen no matter how we have prepared our food whether it's pureed food baby led weaning food our babies are going to gag that is a very natural part of the weaning process but what happens is us parents we freak out we panic and think oh my goodness my baby is going to choke I need to stop this from happening so what we do instinctively is we go in with our finger and try and get out what has went into their mouth but our, even our little finger is massive in our baby's mouth and just to put it in context and again even though this is an audible thing uh, you know you look at your little finger that's the size of my little that size of my airway size of my little finger so you take the size of your baby their airway is the size of their little finger tiny 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 so it doesn't take a lot to block it so if we go in with our little finger and try and do a blind sweep as they're thrusting their tongue forward in the mouth in the gag we are actually at risk of hitting what's on their tongue off their tongue into the back of their throat into the airway causing a choke which is what we were trying to avoid in the very first place. So we have a little rhyme to help you remember. When our babies gag, they'll go red in the face because of the effort that they're exerting as they gag. And it'll come with noise, maybe like a noise. It's a horrible noise, but it usually comes with this retching noise. So if they are loud and red, you let them go ahead. In other words, we do nothing. We are with our children, we are supervising our children, we do not leave them alone whilst they're eating. They are strapped into a high chair, I cannot iterate that enough, uh, but we're with them. But we do not do anything when they are gagging. If that means that you have to strap yourself to a chair, that's what you have to do, okay? <laughs> and I know it's hard, I know it's hard. I've been there, done that, but we must let them go ahead. It's all part of the natural weaning process. So that is how to spot a gag, okay? So hang tight and let them learn from it. That's very important. I think that's that's a very key piece of information, um, Vicky, in terms of what to look for physically in your child, because you just, you know, we all, like you say, you could have been equipped with all this knowledge, but in that sheer moment, as you say, instinct will be, you know, either get your finger in or whatever um, to their mouth. So then on the other range of the spectrum, choking is is obviously very, very serious um, and something that you don't want to, you know, waste any time, obviously, if there is a choking incident with your child. So what is what should be looking for then with a choke? Great. So we have two different types of choke. We have a partial blockage choke and a full blockage choke. The partial blockage choke means that there is some air still getting into the baby and child's airway. So they'll still be able to draw breath, which means the brain will remain in fight mode. Whenever our brain is in fight mode, the body will actively cough and try and clear that blockage itself. Again, they'll be red in the face from the effort. There'll be plenty of noise because they're coughing loads. And I know we don't like to talk about coughing right now, but in this instance, coughing is a very good reaction that you want. And again, they're loud, they're red, so you let them go ahead. They will bring that blockage forward themselves. Okay, so again, we do nothing. Again, we're in standby, of course we are. But for the majority, you let them go ahead. The other side of that then, which is the big scary one, is the full blockage choke. And this is where no air at all can get into the airway. So whenever the child can't draw breath, the brain will go into flight mode and all the body will do at that moment will open its mouth as wide as it can go. In flight mode, the brain tells the body to open. So they will sit with their mouth wide open. Very quickly, their nice little pink face will go very pale and they may start to go blue around the lip. 
And the reason for that is babies' oxygen levels, they can't retain them in the same way as we do as adults. So this is the one time that we step into action. So if they're loud and red, you let them go ahead. If they're quiet and blue, they need help from you. So now we're off our chair. We're getting them out of the high chair. Again, they'll always be strapped in. You will get them on strap very quickly. I guarantee you. So straight out of the high chair and then we're going to support. This is where I feel like I need my mannequin. Uh, you're going to support their two cheekbones using your finger and your thumb. You're going to put them in a downwards position at about a 45 degree downwards position. So you're not hanging them totally upside down, but you're supporting them in a downwards angle of about 45 degrees. Then you're going to deliver five back blows using the heel of your hand, so like the chunky bit of your hand. And you're going to deliver those back blows directly between the shoulder blades. And just before you begin those back blows, you may just want to take a wee look into their mouth to see if the blockage can be seen. Again, if it can be, don't, you know, don't go in with your fingers to, you could actually nearly push it further on down in. But if you can see it, that's a good sign because it means that it's ready to come out. It just needs a little bit of help. So we're going to deliver five back blows using the heel of the hand in between the shoulder blades. If that has not worked, you're flicking them over. You're supporting the back of their head. Again, hold them in a 45 degree downwards angle. We're then going to deliver five chest thrusts. So that's basically two fingers right into the middle of the chest. It's a very vigorous inwards and upwards movement. And you will be able to see if the blockage comes out in that position. You do that sequence of five back blows, five chest thrusts, five back blows, five chest thrusts until either the blockage comes up or the child becomes unconscious. If the child becomes unconscious, you get them down onto a hard surface and you begin your CPR sequence. And your faces just say it all. These are the faces that I'm greeted with whenever I'm telling people this because it's just <laughs> that like fear of... <gasps> uh, and the, the thing is, our babies and small children are 34% risk of choking. So 34% of our children will have a choking incident in their life. But the more concerning statistic is 70% of parents said that they wouldn't know what to do. So that's why our courses are so, so, so important because we're going to drive down that 70% to people that they know what to do. And, you know, people say, well, Vicky, hang on, you forgot something very important there. You, you haven't rang for an ambulance. I haven't forgot. Whenever we ask that in a class, for example, some people would say, oh, here, as soon as I see my child choke, I'm ringing for an ambulance. And that's fine. If that's your comfort zone, that is OK. But in an emergency situation, believe it or not, we tend to be more active as in want to actively do something rather than just lift a phone. And even though you may not exactly know what to do, you've seen it on TV enough times to know that, oh, here, I'll, I'll, I'll hit their back and see what happens. The good thing about ringing for an ambulance if you see a child choke is if you forget what to do or you don't know what to do, those wonderful people at the end of that 999 call will tell you what to do. Some people say, I'll ring you. I'm like, no, don't ring me. <laughs> Don't ring me. Uh, so they will talk you through everything that you need to do. The recommendation is that you wait five back blows and one chest thrust. The reason for that is back blows are really effective when done properly. It's not just a wee pat on the back when you're burping the child, for example. It is a proper blow to the back and it is very effective. One chest thrust because we've done something very vigorous in a very soft part of our baby's body. So even if even if the blockage come up after one chest thrust, just to make ourselves feel better, we would want our child to go off and get seen to in case we've done, you know, we just want to make sure that everything is okay on their wee insides. And yeah, it just gives us that peace of mind as such after quite a stressful moment in time there. I can actually feel my own heart rate going up just thinking about it and talking about it. But you know what? No. Talking it over with you is also reassuring me as well as terrifying me at the thought of it happening. You know, going going over those steps. I'm like, okay, right, that 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 makes sense. You know, it's good to be armed with this 
information as well, especially because my wee boy's 18 months now and he's picking up everything, you know, picking up stones and you're just like, you cannot take your eyes off him. So never mind, you know, once the waning journey's over, um, it's it's that thing where they just put anything in their mouth potentially and you're having to get a stone out or something like that potentially or a toy. Exactly. The, the risk of choking doesn't necessarily go down after the weaning process because as you're saying rightly, it's actually nearly worse after they wean because once they get on their feet, they're picking up everything. And there is a slight difference to the sequence once they become one year where they move from chest thrusts to abdominal thrusts. So we move our, so we make like a wee fist and the position is just below the sternum and above the belly button. So they become abdominal thrusts beyond one year. And in our sessions, we do the baby sequence, excuse me, and also the child sequence, which is anything from one year and one day, the whole way up to puberty. So it means that we cover everything within that two hours. Yeah, because that, that's it. You know, like you say, you go from worried about them being choking when you're waning to them toddling about and picking up anything um but I suppose that leads us on then to accidents at home because little ones are forever falling over especially when they're learning to walk and starting to run you know there's just your home just becomes um a danger zone nearly (laughs) um but I suppose we wanted to chat today about how to deal with emergencies at home especially during COVID because parents you know you become cautious about contacting the emergency services you don't want to waste their time um but it would be good I suppose to chat through to you if with regards to you know burns and bumps when it's time to actually seek medical assistance and what can be treated at home you know I know Theo had his first bad bump to the head a couple of weeks ago you know running about outside and as soon as I picked him up um I could see like the little like um bruise starting to appear in his head and we were like what do we do do do, do we need to call even you know 111 um so Vicky what what's your advice when it comes to accidents at home one thing that I will say from the outset and we have preached this from the very first day of lockdown last year that regardless of what else is going on in the big scary world you see if you have an emergency at home and you feel that you need to reach out for further help please do so. Do not be sitting at home feared of or afraid to waste services because you're not. This is your child or your children and you want to make sure that they are okay. And our health minister, again, I always remember him standing up on the podium saying, uh, you know, the emergency services are there. They're fully equipped and ready to go for all of the other normal stuff in inverted commas that will still continue to happen through a pandemic. So if any parents have any concerns, always reach out. Make the phone call, as you say, dial 111. Dial for your own doctor. They're doing a triage service, a vast majority of them now. Ring out of hours whenever it is at the weekend or at night time those people are still there to offer you the help and support that you need. Uh, so don't be afraid to reach out. But there are things that we can do at home. And as you say, a bump to the head is very common. From they begin to set up, they are at risk of toppling over and having a wee bump to the head or a wee bruise to the arm or the leg. But we tend to be more concerned whenever it is to do with the head area. Um, and I think that's just very natural to do that. And whenever they begin to set up, we cushion them. You know, we, we surround them by cushions. <laughs> so, But it's whenever they get up on their feet and the world is literally their oyster that they can fall and bang into absolutely anything. Particularly corners of tables are a very fine dab at finding the corner of a table. They're wonderful at that. So they're, they're can we say normal bumps in inverted commas because those bumps will happen on a regular basis and our forehead is actually designed for impact believe it or not uh, again another wonderful built-in safety mechanism that our kids have so whenever our children fall over if they get up themselves so we, you know the way if a child falls over you run over and you lift them 
We encourage parents to let the child get up themselves, particularly if they fall outside or fall, you know, maybe at a park, for example, because it means that they can get up themselves. Whereas if we lift them up, we were actually maybe putting, you know, hurting something else or making something worse that we didn't see initially. So ask them if they can get up themselves, first of all. If they have a wee bump to the head, loads of comfort, loads of cuddles. And as you say, you will see a bit of swelling. You'll see a wee red part where the impact actually occurred and we want to help with the pain we want to help with the swelling and we want to help with the bruising and a cold pack does wonders for this so we always would suggest having a gel cold pack in the fridge and a gel pack that comes out of the fridge can go directly onto the skin whereas something that comes out of the freezer needs to be wrapped in a damp cloth because you don't want to be putting something that cold directly onto skin. So the cold therapy then will reduce the swelling and it will reduce the level of bruising because in effect you are restricting the blood flow to that area and that sounds really scary but it's obviously done in a very small amount and you can only keep the cold pack on for a maximum of 10 minutes for that reason. So after 10 minutes, take it off and you can put it again on after another 10 minutes if you feel that they still need it. But in a vast majority of these normal bumps, you know, you'll put the cool pack on. We have like little cartoon characters in all of our cold packs because they're a wonderful distraction technique for the kids as well. So usually after a few minutes, they've had enough and they're like, actually, nah, do you know what? I want to go off and play again. Goodbye. And that's what you want you want them to have that reaction and that's fine but other things you should be looking out for with regards to potential medical attention if you uh, feel the need if there is an excessive amount of swelling that doesn't respond well to the cold therapy so even after 10 minutes of a cool pack been on if that swelling hasn't gone down that could be a cause for concern also, if the impact causes an indentation, as in other words, there is a clear inward dent in the child's head, that has been a very strong impact that would possibly point towards a skull fracture. And I know that sounds really scary, but with a misshape, that is what could have happened. Other signs then from these normal bumps that you may want to look out for, for up to 48 hours after the bump has occurred, that's how long it can take signs of a head concussion to become apparent. You're looking for signs of dizziness, confusion. Maybe they don't have the same coordination that they had before. If they, they seem to be in pain, you know, so even our nonverbal children, you know, you could see them like, you know, maybe touching their wee head and wincing whenever they, they can feel that pain or older children will just tell you. They may feel nauseous. They may be actually physically sick. And these are all signs that are pointing towards a head concussion. So always keep an eye out for any one of those. If you have any concern, make the call. Please do. Even if they, it doesn't sound like what I have said and you think, nah, they're just not acting their normal sales, make the call. There's no harm in getting them checked over just to put your mind at ease and know that they're perfectly okay. There was another area we wanted to touch on as well, um, Vicky, which is, again, something which is obviously there's lots of hazards around the home. Um, but particularly when we are maybe cooking or, you know, you're maybe juggling a couple of children in the house and you've made yourself a cup of tea. And we all know, it, especially in those early days, how often do you get to actually finish a warm cup of tea or coffee? Not very often, but I mean, and if, by some chance you've set it down, it's still warm, a child manages to get near it and, you know, gets that burn or that impact. I mean, what are the basic steps to treat a burn at any age? Yes, it's interesting that you use the example of a cup of tea because this is exactly what we preach about in our sessions because a cup of tea that may not be warm to you, as you say, what is a hot cup of tea? Uh, a cup of tea that has been poured for 15 minutes is actually still warm enough to burn our babies and small children's skin. And the reason for that is their skin is a lot thinner than ours is. We've built up like a, almost like a hardness in our skin, but they don't have that. So that cold cup of tea 
is still warm enough to cause them a burn. So whenever it comes to burns, there is a, a list of things that we have to do. If I had said to you as adults, well, how would you treat a burn in the house? You'd be like, I don't because who has time for that? I'm trying to make dinner. I'm trying to get out of the house. And we as adults tend to, as I say, run on. But with our children, we need to make sure that we treat every burn seriously. And we need to hold the burn under cool running water for 20 minutes. And we say cool because cold water is actually really painful. You know, if you hold your skin underneath it and we want to hold the burn there for as long as possible. So if you add a wee bit of uh, warm water just to the cold water, it just takes that really cold age off it, particularly in the winter months, you know, when the mains water is absolutely freezing. So cool running water and running water because it, it reduces, massively reduces the risk of infection because the water is constantly fresh. And then 20 minutes because that is going to keep the burn cool for as long as possible. The sooner after the burn you can get it under the cool running water, the better. But you can actually still cool a burn for up to three hours after the burn has occurred. So don't think, oh, there's no point in doing that now because that was half an hour ago. That doesn't matter. You can still cool effectively for up to three hours after. We would then advise the use of a, a water-based gel, which is a burns gel. And again, you can, of course, we, we supply them as NHS grade, uh, but no other like uh, lotions or potions, as we would say, okay? Uh, if you do not have a burns gel, that is fine. Simply put a clean dressing on it that you may obtain from your first aid kit. Or if it's quite a substantial sized burn and you maybe don't even have a first aid kit, the best thing that you have in your house that we all have in our bottom drawer usually, cling film. Cling film is an excellent dressing because whenever we burn ourselves, we what causes the pain is the exposure of the nerve endings to the air. So basically by putting this layer of cling film on top of the burn, we're actually stopping the air from accessing the nerve endings. So by doing that, we're reducing the pain massively. Incorporate a burns gel in there and we could be pain free for approximately three hours, depending on each individual. So when would we go to the hospital then with a the burn? Well, for our babies and small children, if it's on their hands, face, feet or genitals, if it is a full submersion burn, so for example, a jump into the bath would just be one prime example of that, uh, or if it is bigger than 1% of their body. And you think, well, Vicky, what on earth is 1% of my body? 1% is the size of the palm of your hand. So again, I've got quite a big palm. So it takes quite a big burn to, you know, be 1% of my body. But you take all the size of your baby's hand or your child's hand. It's a lot smaller. It does not need to be a big burn to be bigger than 1% of their body. If it is... Uh, on their chest, for example. So I always have this thing about the kettle or a saucepan, for example, and if they pull it, it's going to be sort of in around their neck and chest area. If that happens, you think, well, I need to get this under cool running water. The best place for you to be right now is the shower because that's going to get the cool running water and you're in there with the child to comfort them. You can, of course, if it's you feel it's a burn that you can control, uh, get the cooling done that 20 minutes and then take them off to the hospital yourself. But if you feel that it's not something that you control or you're by yourself, for example, ring 999. Get the ambulance there. And it means by the time you're finished cooling the burn, the ambulance is going to be with you to provide that extra support. Uh, but every scenario would be slightly different. You know, there are there are between 160 and 170 children been admitted to the hospital every day in the UK with a burn. So we want to reduce that. If we can't reduce it because accidents do happen, then we need to know then how to reduce or to treat it. You you mentioned obviously cooling the burn and getting it getting it under the cold or the cool running water um as soon as possible. What's the situation then with with clothes? So as you said, you mentioned if it's a hot if it's something hot that's been pulled down, they're wearing a t shirt, they're wearing a vest. Um, do you? put them straight under the water with their clothes or do you attempt to remove that or is that obviously going to make 
the effect obviously worse if it's if the clothes are stuck to the skin yes so I'm, I'm so glad that you you brought that up because if you can get the clothing off and the same principle applies for maybe an older child is maybe wearing like a wee necklace or maybe the child's wearing a wee watch or maybe if they're wearing gloves or anything if there's anything in the area of the burn get it off if you can but please if you feel that you're taking the t-shirt off and it's sticky and there's any resistance at all, please do not remove it because the forceful removal of clothes that are stuck in a burn can actually make the recovery process a lot longer than what it actually needs to be. Yeah, no, that's very that is very helpful to know because that is the first thing you think of. Obviously, you want you want to treat it, but you're thinking, should I take this, you know, this layer off or or whatever else? No, you mentioned a burns gel as well. Something I I have in the house because, as you say, if you get a burn yourself when you're cooking, something I just keep in the fridge and it's what I always go to because you, you say you just have to get on with it. Is the likes of like an aloe vera gel is it suitable on a child? Well, yes, we 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 can't necessarily speak about you know any other. Those would be regarded as lotions and potions. But uh, you're all parents. You have whatever you feel is right for your family. In our house, I only use a uh, water gel. Um, and I'm, I'll show it on screen, is this water gel, burns gel. Okay, so this is the one that they would use in the hospitals and doctors and such. Like there is no smell and it is 100% safe for babies, like wee babies, uh, right up to adults. So, for example, my husband last year went outside, responsible adult, no sunscreen. Don't do that, listeners. Uh, and he turned into a squashy literally he was white and I mean the deepest shade of red so the water gel burn gel came to the rescue and I mean I covered him in it and the level of pain just comes down massively so I can't speak with regards to use on babies and small children off aloe vera for example but certainly do your own research do what is right for you but as first aiders we will only use the the water gel burns gel and I know you mentioned the um just when we're talking about you know what <laughs> the essentials at home and we we are guilty of, of of probably either having too much or not enough when it comes to you know first aid you'll either go overkill and you'll have everything under the sun things you don't even need um but like that burns gel which um obviously can it maybe give us a wee bit more information or, or I'm assuming it's it's probably widely available um but what are the basic I mean the very bare bones of a first aid kit that anyone should have in the home with kids or even you know in the car something that's transportable obviously if you're out and about and um, although we do we will over the last year we've certainly will spend a lot more time at home and um, but maybe as we venture out we'll need a, a car first aid kit more now so I mean what what are the very very basics Vicky you would recommend? Yes well my husband thinks I'm a complete nutter nut case because I have one I've obviously like probably about 30 in my house because we have them as part of our business and I always kept one in my changing bag because you know whenever you go for a walk you know in some cases you could be like a good maybe half hour from your car and that is where your child will choose to fall you can guarantee it and then I also keep one in the bit of the car as well now in a workplace there's a very strict list of stuff that you should have However, as a personal first aid kit, you can add additional things that suit you. Get yourself a good first aid kit that contain different items. So don't just buy a first aid kit with 95 items in it and 90 items are plasters. Okay, I understand the vast majority of cases for our minor injuries such as cuts and grazes, a plaster will solve absolutely everything. Okay. But you do want additional things in there. So, for example, a disposable ice pack is an addition or an excellent addition. So if the children fall at the park, you, you crack it and there you have your disposable ice pack. Uh, your cold there can be can be applied immediately rather than waiting till you get home. Make sure that you have gloves in it because I always think about, well, yes, that's that's fine and done. I don't need gloves for my own kids. But if it was somebody else's child that fell in a park, I would be, if they would allow me, the first people or the first person there to help if I could. So I always make sure there are gloves in it. Uh, a triangular bandage, maybe just in case they, they end up hurting their arm and it needs to be supported until they got to the hospital, for example. There's non-adherent dressing, so they're just like a, a much bigger plaster without the sticky bit. 
if that makes sense. And it means it covers bigger areas. So if it was quite a substantial graze to the knee, for example, you could put this non-adherent dressing over it until they maybe got to get it checked out or if they got home, for example. Uh, we also encourage the inclusion of a thermometer in our first aid kits because you know yourself, you can't take temperatures enough now. Uh, so we also include one of those. We have our micropore tape to stick on the the non-adherent dresses, for example. We've got finger dressings, iPads, not the ones that run on electricity, by the way. Kids always get really excited about that. The ones that actually go over your eye if there's something goes into the eye. A foil blanket is an excellent addition as well. So again, if something happens and we end up where a child or an adult even goes into shock, the foil blanket is excellent to be able to keep the heat in and a non non or non a conforming bandage so if they sprain their ankle for example the conforming bandage is the one that you can wrap up tightly and gives that ankle a little bit of support and there's also scissors in there that you can use to either cut a bandage or worst case scenario cut clothing so if they've got a quite a substantial graze to the knee after a fall of their bike for example and you need access to the knee you can cut the trousers up without having to pull them up you know and then it gets stuck so they you can use the wee scissors to cut the trousers open although kids will mortally hit you for that so I do apologize <laughs> so a good varied first aid kit so don't just buy don't it's not even about price it's about buying one with a good variation of contents within it. And also good first aid kits will also contain little sachets of Burns gel as well, which means that you will have access to it on the go if needed. Do you know what? I We bought first aid kits, um, one for the car and one for the house. Um, and, you know, thankfully touch wood, we've not, not need to pull, not had to pull them out yet. But after chatting to you, I'm going to go and get them out and see what's actually in them because I have no idea. Oh, yes. And <laughs> one big thing I've just actually just remembered, wipes, the, uh, the wound wipes. We're not allowed to call them antiseptic wipes anymore. They're called wound wipes, which are great whenever you don't have access to running water. Then you can use those to help clear out little minor cuts or little minor grazes whenever you're out and about. But yeah, have a good look. I've got a full extensive list here if you want to like tick the stuff off to see if you have everything, it's fine. No, I really am probably going to. You know, you've, you've given us a lot to think about and it's, I'm, I'm feeling more confident after having spoken to you and, and you speaking, talking us through all of those common things that, you know, parents come across, accidents around the house. Because um, it's it's a huge area, to, one that I think for myself, you know, I have a lot of anxiety around and I'm sure other parents do as well. But, you know, listening to you speaking today, it's definitely given me a lot more confidence. Great. That is exactly what we do in our sessions. So apart from, yeah, the, the faces sort of change through the session. So they go from that look of horror and fear at the start, whenever you're talking about CPR and choking, to that face that you have right now. You're like, oh, yes, I'm I'm so glad that I did this. And it's not, you know, we, we spend money on huge ticket items whenever we have our babies like without a doubt we go out and we buy a pram we buy nursery furniture no expenses spared and then we we have these little courses at 20 pounds per person and very small price ticket item and probably one of the things that will stay with you for the rest of your life and we hope that nobody ever needs to use it but it's there for that little small amount of money if you ever do need to. Sorry pretty similar to yourself like I would think I always think to myself goodness if I was thrust into that situation I think I you know I think I would just panic I wouldn't know how to react but when you're equipped with the knowledge as you say Vicky you're probably you're more instinctively like if you have if you know what to do it will come back to you and you will act obviously and and hopefully help the situation Mm -hmm. without a doubt and unfortunately I've had first-hand experience between outside circumstances and even with my own kids they've literally you name it they've done it uh and it's just one of those things and yes my children have all choked and this was even before I became a first aid trainer and thankfully they are all okay so it does happen don't think that uh you know that'll I'll not that'll not happen to me that happens to such and such down there and that happened to me it does happen and uh so yeah we we do aim to provide reassurance. That is our always our bottom line and providing reassurance and knowledge to parents like yourselves.
So I think definitely after after chatting to Vicky, I do feel more reassured about what to do in those certain situations, but it's definitely made me think I'm going to get booked on to a course and actually physically do it as well so that I have those practical skills that, that she was chatting us through because um, they are invaluable. We know that. And I think now, especially with, with baby number two on the way, I think my hands are going to be even even more jam-packed. <laughs> so I think with the toddler running around and a baby in the house, those skills will never go amiss. And exactly. We did one before Theo was born and it was it was great. Um, but speaking to Vicky there, I think it's just refreshed everything for me and I feel a lot more confident now, you know, if anything was was to happen. Um, so it's definitely something I would recommend. Yeah. And well, little did I know as well, just um, <laughs> literally the next day after chatting to to, to Vicky, um, I would have to call on some of her skills there when she oh, mentioned no. with bumps because we were... It was, we're in, in the midst of potty training so you can imagine Sarah trying to keep a toddler occupied and while in the house and keeping him contained for a couple of days while we were doing the potty training and um, Dara was clearly getting bored and decided you know climbing on the seats is always fun and pretending to be Spider-Man mm. is always fun until he tumbled off the back and I mean by inches missed his head on the corner of the, the, oh, no. the unit but did hit the floor and got up with the most ginormous bump I've ever seen on his head but it was it was it was good actually because I knew it was literally the next day and I knew exactly then what to do I went straight to the straight to the fridge had one of those little cold compresses already in there got Mm -hmm. it on it got him calmed down give him a lolly nice lolly to get him occupied (laughs) while I held the the compress and right enough it it worked wonders it really it brought the swelling down and even he was really you know he was fascinated by you know the bump was there and then the bump was was gone so Definitely invaluable. <laughs> yeah, came in handy. I know we actually bought some of those cold compresses as well, that just in case yeah. after speaking to Vicky. You never know when you, you never might know. need them. <laughs> Definitely not. You can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Music and anywhere you get your podcasts.